From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. This podcast is called Fetch Me a Stoop of Liquor. It should not be surprising that two English professors would be in love both with the sophisticated delights of the cocktail hour and the sophisticated delights of William Shakespeare. What's more surprising, though, is that they have decided to join these two loves and create a book of bard-inspired cocktail recipes with names like Kate's Shrewdriver and Hamlet's Unweeded Garden Spring Rolls. Caroline Bix, a professor at Boston College, and Michelle Ephraim, a professor at Worcester Polytechnical Institute, have written Shakespeare Not Stirred, which they say promises cocktails for your everyday dramas. We asked them to come in and explain. They're interviewed by Rebecca Shear. Tell us what this Mm -hmm. book isn't, because people might hear about it, look at the title, and think it's something that it's not. Right. Well, we say this right up front in our introduction to the book, actually, that we are not the kind of people who go to Renaissance fairs or dress up or serve Henry VIII-style uh, <laughs> mutton legs at neighborhood block parties. Although we respect those people. Absolutely. <laughs> no. um, so this is not a historical uh, book about the food and drinks that Shakespeare and friends ate. This is very much a modern book about modern, unique cocktails and hors d'oeuvres that are inspired by Shakespeare's characters. Mm-hmm. And do I understand it correctly that all of this came out of a blog you, you two used to write? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we started about four years ago blogging at uh, something we invented called Everyday Shakespeare. And it was a place for us to unload and talk about the ways that our lives felt like um, they were part of a Shakespeare play. Um, so we, for example, might think about, well, I'm having a problem about how to handle this particular mom at pickup. Well, what would, <laughs> what would Lady Macbeth say? You know, so we'd have an advice column where we'd bring in the Shakespeare characters to help you through your, you know, specific everyday problems, et cetera. It and happened what, very organically. Yes. <laughs> well, what then, what then brought you to alcohol? Excellent question. <laughs> well, also organically. Now, um, you know, Caroline and I are very serious scholars. Um, We also believe very much in the value of our personal lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, we like to socialize a lot Mm -hmm. and uh, with each other, with friends. And we found that our the pleasure that we got from creating cocktail recipes and going out to dinner was something that in our minds was also connected with the study of Shakespeare because that was often the occasion where we would discuss things in Shakespeare in a very fun way that connected to Mm -hmm. our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. And we have pretty crazy everyday lives. So for us, getting together as really good friends often would happen at about 10 p.m. after we'd gotten the kids to bed and planned our lesson plans Mm -hmm. and graded our papers. We'd get together at whatever was open at 10 p.m., which there wasn't a whole lot back then. Often it was the Cheesecake Factory. Often it was the Cheesecake Factory. Yes. Uh, And that's where we would get together and unload and sort of uh, debrief from our days over, you know, a cocktail. And then it really hit us one night when we were sitting there that it was time for us to make a cocktail book that would bring all of the things we'd been talking about all day and then when we'd get together in a more personal way, using Shakespeare's characters to help us through our problems, that a cocktail book would be the perfect way to pay it forward Shakespeare style. So meeting up over a cocktail, sharing a drink, that was just very much mm-hmm. in the spirit of those kinds of connections. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, something I have to ask you about, um, the illustrations in the book. Now, for ah, those yes. who don't know, <laughs> throughout this book, there are these images, all of them from the Folger collection. 
Mm-hmm. And I should say none of the actual images were altered in any way. But you've done some creative photoshopping. Can you talk about that? <laughs> yes. Yes. That's part of the, the joy of this project um, is it really came about with us thinking at the same time about how we could bring in these images so that it would be a real three-dimensional experience for, for readers. Um, and the Folger as you know, as we all know, is is the place, it's the archive of, if you want to go find an image of a Shakespeare scene, a Shakespeare moment, a Shakespeare character, um, it's this rich, rich archive. So we knew we wanted to work with the Folger, work with their images to bring these moments to life. And sometimes the images themselves were inspiration for our drinks. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we were looking for a specific image, and sometimes we would see an image and say, we absolutely have to create a drink around this. Mm -hmm. For example, a 19th century print of Cleopatra um, at her death scene with a worm (laughs) on her chest (laughs) applied to her chest um, looked very much like a post-party tableau and all of her her, her, all of her maids dead around her at her feet looked like they were passed out and we just couldn't pass it up the image needed shot glasses to Mm -hmm. be complete Mm -hmm. clearly Mm -hmm. and hence the Cleopatra's joy of the worm bachelorette shot was born Mm -hmm. Ooh, what's what's in that what you would expect. (laughs) And and so much more. That's not our most creative drink, but the text very creative. It does involve a gummy worm. It involves a gummy worm, yes. So it's a shot of tequila with a gummy worm. Yes. (laughs) We'll get to more specific recipes in just a bit, but speaking Mm. of these photos where where you insert things like wine glasses, shot glasses, Mm -hmm. that that one Mm four-panel of Juliet and her nurse... Oh, oh yes. that one was that was a brilliant discovery. Michelle found that one, and it was it was it was brilliant. We were l- trying to find a picture of the nurse because we knew we wanted to feature her, and we found this four panel. She found it, where Juliet's sitting on the nurse's lap in the first <laughs> two <laughs> pictures, and then she's by herself in her room um, drinking what would be, of course, the the potion from the fryer, but looked an awful lot like she could be drinking a shot. And then in the final (laughs) panel, she is, of course, almost dead, being carried off by uh, Romeo, looking like she's possibly passed out. So that was one that, again, invited... Lent itself to a slightly different take. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, the images are all about the history of visual interpretation, and we just added our own layer to that, (laughs) if you will, of inserting shot glasses to that, to those four panels and um, making it into something a little different. Mm-hmm. When you requested these images at the Folger, what did you tell the nice people you wanted them for? <laughs> <laughs> this was everyone was a fully consenting adult in this process. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, we did. We, uh, we, yeah. Right. No, we did give a lot of thought to that um, so that they would take our phone calls, of course. That was important. The wonderful thing about the Folger is that They have a great sense of humor, and they are very open to modern interpretations of Shakespeare and very much understand Shakespeare as text and as, in the case of the images, as visuals that draw people in, in many different ways, and that is, in fact, the spirit of Shakespeare. Now, moving away from the pictures, for Chapter 1, the theme seems to be Uh, King Lear does awful stuff to his children. (laughs) Claudius taunts Hamlet by calling him son. Basically, having a stiff drink is a great way to deal with all of your horrible relatives. Do do I have that right, more or less? Yeah, I think think the way we framed it was it's not the healthiest way to deal with it, but it's a lot more fun than being called selfish and 
all the other things that your family can do to you. Right. So, right. Yeah. Um, you also feature hors d'oeuvres in the book. Yes. Mm-hmm. Some of which are, are so smart. Uh, we mentioned Cleopatra before. Talk to us about Cleopatra's flings in a blanket. So that came out of an anecdote that's in Plutarch that Shakespeare was working from, the the North translation, where Cleopatra, this is before she has hooked up with Julius Caesar, um, but she's very interested in him, and she has... Uh, she has to get into his apartment secretly. So she has herself rolled into... Now, what she's rolled into has changed over the centuries um, through different translations. In the original, it's some kind of mattress. Um, It later becomes a carpet, but Shakespeare um, certainly knew this anecdote. So we thought it would be funny to make it a blanket. And that's where something came together for us. And we thought, ah, of course, it would be the pigs in the blanket. Mm -hmm. But for her, it would be a flings in a blanket. (laughs) And um, Imogen's guacamole. And that's that's mole, right? Not mole, not guacamole. Exactly. Guacamole. Right. Tell us the story of that. So that is coming out of another. This is actually uh, uh, an image that was very popular. You see the, the Folger has many images of this scene where you have Giacomo, who is the evil Italian, who is um, trying to convince Posthumus that he can seduce Posthumus's wife, Imogen. So he sneaks into her bedchamber, and actually, he, of course, he doesn't seduce her, but he sees a mole on her breast, and he also takes a... A bracelet, but the mole to us was very funny. And then he goes and tells Posthumus, well, I know about the mole on your wife's breast, so I seduced her. And it works, because of course in Shakespeare, husbands always are very quick to believe that their wives have cheated on them. Um, so we thought we'd like to have her be able to reclaim her mole. Reclaim since, her mole, yes. Uh, so we thought the guacamole. So she's in the chapter on the um, domestically distressed ladies. Right. Now is the whiskey of our discontent, Mm -hmm. is that chapter. (laughs) Yes. At the end of some of the book's drink descriptions, you have these little sections you call mini bards. I'm curious, what's what's the inspiration behind those mini bards? Well, Caroline and I know a lot about Shakespeare. (laughs) Let me start with that. Um, And... It's very hard for us to stop talking about Shakespeare. And while we wanted to make this book very accessible for every reader, we also felt that we couldn't leave some issues um, alone in just the drink and hors d'oeuvre description. So if it's a particularly controversial or complicated issue or a context that we felt needed to be there, we put it in as a mini bard. Mm -hmm. As we say in our introduction... You don't have to read the mini bards. You can just enjoy the drinks and the hors d'oeuvres, but they're there. They're yeah. context and content that we felt was very relevant mm-hmm. to the information that we're bringing up mm-hmm. in the descriptions. And that was fun for us, too, as scholars, to be able to think about how can I put into one paragraph my entire book I have about women and childbirth. <laughs> yes. right. So I'm going to just compress this and write this for a larger audience, um, mm-hmm. for example. Or Michelle, who's done a lot of work on Jewish women, has a whole book on that. You know, So when she's doing a mini bard on what does it mean to be a converso, what's the status of the Jew in Elizabethan England, she has a lot of knowledge she's bringing to that. But then the fun of the mini bard is finding a way to write about it in an accessible way and that gives people a little bit of a hit. Like you're rating the right. mini bard. If you right. want to learn a little bit, here it is. There's a chapter in the book on on recapturing your youth or yes. celebrating your youth or I don't know. Drinking That's very in. close to our heart. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the drinks in that chapter, we've got the forest flyer for mm-hmm. folks who haven't read the book. What's the forest mm-hmm. flyer? Uh, the forest flyer is inspired by As You Like It. 
and sort of an archetypal moment uh, in Shakespeare of young people running into the woods. It's mm-hmm. not just an mm-hmm. As You Like Midsummer It. Night's Midsummer Night's Dream. Midsummer Night's Dream, for sure. But we were trying to find a drink that captured that spirit of running into the woods to escape from parental authority, mm-hmm. to do something rebellious. And, of course, that meant including Jägermeister mm-hmm. or something closely related to Jägermeister. <laughs> mm-hmm. We have a more sophisticated version, which is Sambuca. Mm-hmm. Ah. But um, it's meant to capture those rebellious moments when mm-hmm. you did things like that right. as a kid. It also happens to have a very high level alcohol quantity that allows you to set it on fire should you want to do that. Right. Because it's also <laughs> appealing to young people. Yes. But we do it safely as mature adults use a glass, not a solo cup, or it will melt, which we found out one morning yes, when we experimented it in our kitchens. <laughs> there was a lot of danger in writing this right. book. People might right. not be people aware of that. People don't appreciate the danger behind the book. Yes. <laughs> you offer a great little factoid in this chapter about youth. And I I need to know if this is actually true. You say Shakespeare never tells us exactly how old his characters are Mm -hmm. unless they're 14-year-old girls. Yes. (laughs) Really? Yes. This is is something that's coming out of my uh, academic work I'm doing on adolescent girls in Shakespeare's time. So this is something I've actually read a lot about and researched. And when you look through his plays, what really caught my eye is that he really he does not give you ages of characters, but if you're thinking mm-hmm. about the girls, he always gives you a key number that gets you to 14. So, for example, we know that Juliet, the nurse, has a speech where she says, you know, well, she's two weeks away and a few days from being 14, or Lady Capulet says that. Um, we know that um, Miranda is in her 15th year, so she'd be 14, right? So mm-hmm. there's all of this. We've got Perdita um, is actually... 15 in her 16th year. So they're keying themselves very closely to 14 uh, again and again, which is curious and suggests there was something going on about 14-year-old girls, Hmm. as there still is. (laughs) Yes. Seven years too young to drink any of the recipes in your book. Sadly. (laughs) But their parents parents can drink. There you go. Boy, do they need one. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to the mini bards, um, I love your take on the sonnets. Can you read the mini bard about, about the sonnets? Sure. Absolutely. All right. Sonnet sequences, first perfected by the 14th century Italian poet Petrarch, were hugely popular in Shakespeare's day. Some writers used them to impress their friends, gain patrons, or, as many critics think about Shakespeare's poem-writing days, remain productive during times of plague-related theater closings. Sonnet sequences usually focus on three main themes, desire, writing, and writing about desire. Shakespeare is unique in penning a collection of sonnets about homoerotic desire, sex addiction, and a mistress whose breath reeks. The fact that he puns on the name Will, slang for both male and female genitalia, in the sonnets written to the Dark Lady, has led many to assume Shakespeare and the speaker are one and the same. We'll never know for sure, but we can recognize high-quality smut punning when we see it. So thou, being rich in will, Add to thy will, one will of mine, to make thy large will more. Sonnet 135. Put that in a Hallmark card and smoke it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for laughing. Uh, I can't help it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we had so much fun writing this. (laughs) It was a lot of therapy for us together. Clearly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you both teach, of course, and when it comes to your mm-hmm. students, I, I want you to be honest here. When the book comes out, do you, do you think they'll laugh? I think that our students will be amused by this, and I, I say that only because my students seem to get very excited when Shakespeare has relevance to their personal lives. 
And they seem very keen on talking about those connections. I had a student once make many comments about how his clingy ex-girlfriend resembled Helena in Midsummer Night's Dream, and he really related to Demetrius's angst at that moment. So they do that again and again, and it's a very powerful experience for them in the Shakespeare classroom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think, again, that's really the heart and soul of this project. It didn't come out of our love of drinking, although that's certainly a part of it. It really came out of our love of these characters and how they just continue to be relatable. People really feel like they know the characters and they continue to feel like they have a stake in them. And there's something really powerful and lovely about that. And that's part of what the spirit of this book is. We, we want these characters with us, hanging out with us, having a drink with us. And we want to talk to them and they, we feel like they speak to us. Yes. Mm. Yes. Which sounds crazy, but it's, <laughs> but no. it's, it's totally we know not. That we really know they're not here. We, we know, know that they're fictional. Um, Sort of. We did a podcast a while back about the moons around Uranus and how they're named for Shakespeare characters. And one of the stories we were told had to do with a moon that Voyager flew by and took pictures of, the first really, really clear pictures. So they had to come up with all these Shakespeare names for the mountains and valleys and whatnot. and, And they brainstormed this massive list, at which point they were like, uh, Elsinore or um, uh, Dunsinane. <laughs> so, so looking through your book, I see something like um, here Lucio's crab cakes, and I wondered, did you just pull Shakespeare names out of a hat? No, that was a case where um, because he was in our youth chapter, and we knew that part of recapturing your youth and part of the bad side of youth is, mm-hmm. of course, dealing with unfortunate sexual choices you might make. Uh, and we knew we wanted to do something um, that would pun on the idea of crabs. Oh. Um, and Lucio for us is the kind of the horn dog in Shakespeare's. Canon, oh, absolutely! I think is the best <laughs> yes. way to put it. He is the most at risk for yes. these kinds of diseases. And in fact, he was he, the obvious. He choice. speaks. He boasts about them actually in Measure for Measure. So. Yes. We felt that he'd be a good candidate for the crabs cakes. Kind of gross, he was, he but was the easy choice. A little gross. Choice, and I have yeah. to say, they're actually delicious. I don't know if anyone's going to want to make them. <laughs> right. That and the Titus's mini meat pies probably get the most groans from people. But I think they're really quite delicious. Wait, what about yeah. Sex in the Breach? Mmm, yummy. It's actually a great drink. It's a very great drink. Yeah. <laughs> that we, one, yes. We worked very, worked hard, very hard to test that. all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. so uh, Sex in the Breach yes. also. Yes. Um, we knew that had to be Claudius, actually, because breach is such a, a trigger word um, in Shakespeare's time period for thinking about uh, incest. And in Hamlet, that, that is such a key word, breach. Mm-hmm. Um, so we thought, well, it has to be Claudius because the problem of incest, of course, is one of breaching boundaries. Uh, and he is the ultimate boundary breacher. So we knew it would have to be Claudius's Sex in the Breach. And then he just fit naturally into the dysfunctional family gathering chapter. (laughs) Another, And we also, we wanted to put it from his point of view as Mm -hmm, well for dealing with an unstable stepson. Right, who has no sense of humor. Right. I won't give him a break. (laughs) Well, would Hamlet even drink alcohol at all? He wouldn't at all. We had a drink that we ended up taking out called, uh, it was his Hamlet's Joy Kill. But it had no alcohol. We thought, why is this in here? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, ha- right. He's not fun. <laughs> Hamlet's drink got dinged. Right. <laughs> it wasn't fun It was going to be enough. made with like non-alcoholic aquavit. It was, <laughs> right. not, it was right. not going to be good. Yeah. No one would drink it. These are the kinds of hard decisions we had to make yeah. while writing this book. Mm-hmm. This goes good. back to what you were saying earlier, how this book seems so humorous and funny, but actually a lot of thought and analysis and interpretation oh, yeah. has to go into thinking of, of these recipes. Oh, absolutely. It took us three years to write this book. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot. And we really, we are, we are 
very precise in our planning. Mm-hmm. We love our planning, and I think it's one of the best features of the book our, is our puns. Absolutely. Yes. And we also, Caroline and I, have very intense relationships with the text. Mm-hmm. And as Shakespeareans, we would sometimes get into arguments oh, yeah. about words Mm-hmm. One word, maybe, mm-hmm. or about a particular character. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a conflict about Isabella for a while, if you remember that oh, one. Yeah, oh, yeah, for yes. measure, for measure. That mm-hmm. was at the heart of this book. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's what the Isabella one's a really interesting example. Yes. Because we were both, because I really felt like Isabella, uh, I think if I remember, you were the one feeling like she was just too um, uptight. Yes, because she is. And she kind of deserved what she got in certain she ways in the play. <laughs> and I'm thinking... This poor woman, <laughs> why does she have to give up what she wants because of a sibling? Now, fair warning, Michelle is an only child. <laughs> right. So what was the final decision when it came to Isabella? I think I convinced her that it was really, why should she have to cover for the mess-up sibling? Right. And so she became part of the dysfunctional family gatherings section on the together sibling who has to always cover for the one who's making mistakes. Because that's, of course, the the whole concept of that play. The foundation is that she has to just... You know, she's being asked to give up everything she cares about because her her uh, mess up of a little brother has uh, gotten himself in jail by right. breaking the law and having sex with his and girlfriend. And she's she's penalized for being the together sibling, exactly. as together right. siblings often are. Right. But it actually is a good anecdote too for how there was a lot of compromise because mm-hmm. with every character there are many interpretations, and mm-hmm. Caroline and I had a, had to have a lot of discussions to come to agreements on mm-hmm. what interpretation mm-hmm. we were going to put forth. I think a good example of that might be the, the drowning Ophelia, because oh, the circumstances yes. of her death are so, are, are so oh. maybe a little bit sketchy. Can you talk about that? And that's one where the image that we found at the Folger Library was perfect oh. because the interpretive ambiguity is so clear mm-hmm. in that image. And mm-hmm. that's very much part of the history of reading right. that scene. Right. In that image, she's reaching, the one we found, she's reaching toward the water, but she's holding onto the tree, too. So she doesn't look like she's about to kill herself. Right. Uh, but there is that moment where she's suspended. And she's reaching, of course, in our version, toward a lily pad that has a lovely um cocktail on it. <laughs> so, Which makes so much sense. Be, she could be just trying to get a good drink, right. really, and that's right. what happened to her. That seems a clear, as clear I, an interpretation as anything else. Yes, we won't be putting that into any official scholarly article. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was important for us to talk about in the mini bard that accompanies mm-hmm. that drink, mm-hmm. the different interpretive orientations of artists and readers. Is this Gertrude trying to cover up her murdering her because it's so strange that Gertrude is the one giving the suspiciously the long about detailed what description her. of her yes um, hmm. so but also we were trying to counter a long iconographical tradition of having mm-hmm. ophelia uh, imagined dead in the water um, we wanted to show her alive um, so that was part of our challenge was finding an image of her still alive and in that moment of ambiguity mm-hmm. I, mean, I think it's lovely that the edible flowers that you include yeah. there a yeah. nice symbol it's- it's yeah. a beautiful drink. It is. And it it's tastes gorgeous. Very good. It's actually, I think, the first one that we, yes, we invented. I think it oh, is. Really? It's beautiful. It's mm-hmm. also blue. Yes, it's very pretty. Ah. <laughs> you do get uh, sort of creative with your ingredients. We talked about gummy worms before. We've got the edible flowers. Tell us about the drink that involves um, surgical gloves and string. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes. That would be the Weird Sisters' blood and hand punch. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Right, which was such an obvious pun we had to do because the blood and sand is a um, popular drink. And we thought, well, blood and sand, you have to have blood in hand. And right. there, you've got to have <laughs> the Weird Sisters. Right. Um, because they are always chopping off thumbs. They've got that sailor's thumb in their possession. Right. And, uh, they love they would body love parts. Drink. Yes, this would be perfect. Mm-hmm. So this one actually does look a little bloody. Yes. Uh, but again, tasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do use surgical gloves to create um, ice hands and ice thumbs. Yes. Well. And you can pick whether you'd like to use floating fingers or just thumbs or a combination. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Something for everyone. Yes. It's a good Halloween drink. <laughs> I like that you have choices. I like that you have oh, options. We do. Well, that's Always. an I- Oh, we like options. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to pose one last question to you. I, su- I suspect it might be on more than a few people's minds right now as they're listening. Do you two have tenure? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are safe. <laughs> that was the only way. No careers will be damaged in the creation of this book. <laughs> At least not ours. Not ours. <laughs> well, Caroline, Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, thank you, Rebecca. Thank this you was so much. So much fun. This was great. Caroline Bix is a professor at Boston College, and Michelle Ephraim is a professor at Worcester Polytechnical Institute. They are the co-authors of Shakespeare Not Stirred, Cocktails for Your Everyday Dramas. Caroline and Michelle were interviewed by Rebecca Shear. Fetch Me a Stoop of Liquor was produced by Richard Paul and Garland Scott. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had help from Thomas Devlin at public radio station WGBH in Boston. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.